Also, just one clarification. Uh, Mike had mentioned about the transition team, and we are praying for that as well, uh, for the transition team, for the leadership of Bethesda, um, that you will have God's man um, as you seek him and transition. And also, uh, we're actually going to be transitioning to Pennsylvania, uh, right next to Ohio. Um, I'm originally from Ohio, and Pam is from Pennsylvania, so we'll be living um, in Pam's hometown, Somerset, uh, Pennsylvania, and uh, planting a church there uh, by God's grace. And so we appreciate your prayers for us as we prepare for that next chapter uh, in our lives. Today I'm going to continue on. Uh, we've been going through 1 Peter, and today I want to look at uh, verses 13 to 25 and um, it's, a, it's a great challenge uh, because in this passage, uh, Peter is giving us four imperatives to be intentional in our quest for holy living. Um, and if there's anything that our world needs today, it's people who are going to live holy lives. And so Peter challenges us four imperatives to be intentional in our quest for holy living. Let me read down through it and then we'll come back and unpack it. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but it was revealed in these last times for your sake." Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field." The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. So four imperatives to be intentional in our quest for holy living. I came across a story recently that, uh, from June 2017 about a 33-year-old rock climber. His name is Alex Honnold. He scaled El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. Um, it is considered the most challenging wall in the world, and he was the first person to make the climb free, solo, with no equipment or ropes, and at one point he was just hanging from his thumbs a thousand feet above the ground. He lives most of the year out of a van. His lifestyle is known as dirtbagging, which he calls an intentional choice to prioritize his vocation. Honnold says, I want to climb in the best places of the world, and that's my focus. So I'm willing to give up having stability, having a shower, hopefully he doesn't have a wife, having whatever in order to climb the way I want. 
He goes on to say, I'm probably more intentional with the way I live my life than virtually anybody. And that was a phrase that jumped out at me. He is more intentional with the way he lives his life than virtually anybody. He says, I have made clear choices about what I find value in, what risk I am willing to take. I am doing exactly what I love to do. It is very easy for someone sitting on the couch at home to condemn it as crazy and stupid. But he said, I can justify all my choices. Can you say the same about your life? And so I think that is a great question. Can we say the same thing about our lives? Do we, are we intentionally pursuing holy living in our lives? Here, as we've talked about in 1 Peter, we know that these Christians are facing intense suffering and persecution. And yet, Peter calls them to holy living in the midst of suffering and persecution. It brings out the very depths of our being when we're going through something like that. I like the words of J.C. Ryle, who is the first Anglican bishop of Liverpool. He says in Thoughts for Young Men, Tomorrow is the devil's day, but today is God's. Satan cares not how spiritual your intentions may be and how holy your resolutions, if only they are fixed for tomorrow. There's a lot of people who say, well, I'm going to get right with God one of these days. I'm going to get serious about my relationship with God one of these days. And I'll say one thing, with the coronavirus going on, it has altered, it has disrupted our entire lives. And for some of us, it has gotten us out of a routine, into a different routine, and maybe it's an opportunity in a new routine that we become more intentional about living holy lives. So let's look at these four imperatives that Peter gives us on being intentional in pursuing holy living. The first imperative is found right in verse 13. He says, prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. The first imperative is we have to have a fixed hope. I've seen a lot of people who are hopeless. Hopeless people, especially in suffering, don't do well. So Peter is telling them, if you're going to suffer well in the Christian life, you have to have a fixed hope. Now, he says, how do we have this fixed hope? He says, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you. We fix our hope by setting it on the grace of God, remembering his grace. He tells us back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So he tells us we get this hope because Jesus has been raised from the dead. That gives us great hope. But the hope here he's talking about in verse 13 is actually related to Christ's second coming. Because Christ has been raised, he's coming back to take us to be with him, and that gives us great hope. He tells us in verse 1-5, the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse one, or chapter 1, verse 7, when Jesus Christ is revealed, he's talking about the second coming of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 9, the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The salvation of our souls, the finality of that, the completion of that is when Jesus Christ comes back and takes us to be with him. 
chapter 1, verse 20, revealed in these last times for your sake. What he's telling us is that God's grace is present and future. We have present grace to help us. God's grace is sufficient to help us in our time of need, but it's also future. It's on the divine menu, as we said. The first two courses on the divine menu that Wiest would say is justification, where we have been declared righteous by God, and then sanctification, whereby God grows us in holiness. We grow in the fruit of the Spirit. We grow to become more like Jesus. And then there's a third thing on the menu, dessert. Dessert is glorification, where we will be with Christ forever. And if there's something that people who are suffering need to be encouraged with, it's the future. The future that we will be with Jesus Christ. No more tears, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more dying. We will be with Jesus forever. So Peter is saying, in this glorification, set your hope perfectly, wholly, and unchangeably on our future glorification. Don't allow the present suffering to rob you of what is in store for you. That's what Peter's saying. Why? Because this is what gives us fuel for living today. Hope gives fuel for the Christian life. If you find a Christian who is hopeless, you find a Christian who is open to Satan's attacks, who will start believing Satan's lies and will be defeated by the enemy. Here's what it says in the Proverbs in Chapter 13, verse 12. Hope deferred, or in other words, delayed hope, makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. So we don't want delayed hope. We have hope right now in the midst of what we're going through. God gives us hope. And how does he do that? When we set our minds on the grace of God intentionally. Here's how the psalmist said it in Psalm 119, verse 81. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. You see, the psalmist was putting his hope in the word of God, which is the word of grace. And that's what God gives us. In the midst of suffering, we have the word of his grace. Believing what God has said in his word is our hope. And it's not based on emotions. It's not based on circumstances. It's anchored in Christ and his word. This hope also gives believers joy for living. He says in Romans 5, 2, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character and character hope. So even in the midst of suffering, it produces endurance, character, and hope. And we need that to live holy lives. Peter tells us having this fixed hope prepares our minds for action. How do we prepare our minds for action? Here, Peter says, prepare your minds for action. We do it through mental discipline. We have to discipline our mind. In Peter's day, they wore long flowing robes. 
And to get from point A to point B, they would have to pick their robe up and they would actually tuck it in their waist belt so they could run freely because if they didn't and they tried to run before they would pick up their robe and tuck it in, they would trip and fall and could injure themselves. So here's what Peter's saying. He's saying with your mind, the discipline of your mind, you need to pick up those things and tuck it in so that it is not going to trip you up. In other words, what are the things in your mind that trip you up? What are the things that Satan puts in your mind? Fear, worry, anxiety. Peter's saying, tuck those things in to the grace of God. Don't allow those things to hinder your spiritual progress. Some people live in constant fear, constant worry, constant what if, and Peter's saying, don't do that because that's going to hinder your spiritual progress. Set your hope, be mentally disciplined so that you can make progress in the Christian life. Paul says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I think Anthony referred to that verse last week. The idea of renewing your mind, that takes mental discipline. It does not happen by osmosis. It's hard work. So we have to renew our minds, and we do that through the Word of God daily. Uh, my routine is in the mornings, I usually, that's when I open the Scriptures, uh, and I read. And oftentimes I try to jot down uh, a few thoughts uh, in a journal to help me, to renew my mind to set my hope on the grace of God. How do you do it and when do you do it? Um, What does it do to prepare our minds for action? He's saying we need to be spiritually alert. There's spiritual alertness. We take the focus off ourselves, off our circumstances, and we allow the future to impact our present, the future that God has for us. He says, beware of anything that will inhibit your spiritual alertness or laziness of mind. We are to do this once and for all. He's telling us that the undisciplined mind will be a hindrance to our spiritual development. If you just go with the flow of culture, you're going to run the wrong way. Spiritual alertness, to be sober, there's no distortion. You think and see clearly. Reality is not distorted by fear or worry or negative or mental attitude. And he's telling us that alertness and sobriety go hand in hand. We are to be self-controlled. Notice he says, prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. He tells us later in 1 Peter 5, 8, be self-controlled and alert Why? Because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's looking for someone to devour. And actually, in in Proverbs, the idea is being prudent. What is the idea of being prudent? It's looking ahead. It's thinking ahead. It's preparing ourselves before something happens. He says in Proverbs 22, 3, the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. He tells us that the prudent gives thoughts to his steps. So ask yourself this question. Will participating in this activity 
help or hinder my spiritual development? Good question to ask. Before you participate, is it going to help or hinder your spiritual development? Will this relationship that I am involved in, will it encourage or discourage my walk with Christ? You see, relationships are important because they can help us encourage us to get closer to Christ or they can discourage us and drive us further away from Christ. Um, I remember... um, one of my friends at uh, Ryan's Christian Bar Mitzvah that he had a number of years ago, I remember he challenged Ryan as a young teenager, 13. He said, Ryan, pick your friends or your friends will pick you. And I say that to you, young people. Pick your friends or they're going to pick you. Make sure you pick friends that are going to encourage your walk with Christ, encourage you in holy living. Also, and I don't remember who said this, but I love the quote. He said, when an opportunity presents itself, it's too late to prepare. And so preparation, Peter's saying, we don't know what's going to happen in the future. When the opportunity presents itself, though, it's too late to prepare. So we need to be prepared. We need to be wakeful and watchful in our uh, self-control, in our Preparing our minds for action. Well, I'm going to move on to the second one here. I see time is moving on. Uh, The second imperative is to have a faithful testimony. A faithful testimony. We move from a fixed hope to a faithful testimony. Notice what he says here in verses 15 and 16. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. So why are we saying a faithful testimony? Because that's what holy people have. If you are living a holy life, you have a faithful testimony. See, holiness is about living our lives in such a way that the gospel is attractive to a lost and watching world. He says, notice too, he said, it is written, to be holy. Where was that written? Well, if you go clear back in the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus, 1500 BC, probably written on clay tablets by Moses, Moses told the Israelites to be holy because God is holy. And here we are now in 60 AD in Peter, and Peter is saying it is written to be holy. What is Peter saying? Peter is saying over 1,500 years later, what God wrote through Moses is just as relevant today as it was in 1500 B.C. It's also just as relevant in the 21st century. God is telling us through Peter today that we are to be holy. Be holy people. Don't be swayed by the culture. Allow my patterns of life to be governed after God in my work in my home life, in my thought life, in my recreational life, in my entertainment life. He's saying that we are to be separate from evil and we are to be loyal to the truth. That we have a consistent lifestyle that says no to evil and yes to righteousness. In our personal life, our habits, our mannerisms, our dress. You say those are external things, they are. 
Because you see, when I have a change of heart, when I am pursuing holiness in my heart and in my life, it changes everything externally. It changes everything about me. My behavior, my speech, it demonstrates that God is on the throne of my life, that I've been cleansed by the blood of Christ and regenerated by His Spirit. The Latin root for testimony is testus. Testus means witness. You see, our life is to be a faithful witness for Christ. So I have a question. Are you striving to pattern your life after the life of Christ? Are you a Christian who's true to his name? We are to be like a little Christ, devoted to Christ. And we have a faithful witness in our personal life. Do my, can my wife and children say, yeah, he's not perfect, he makes mistakes, he asks for forgiveness when he messes up, but he's striving to live a holy life. He's striving to honor the Lord. He doesn't have one life at home and another life in public. He's holy in private. He's holy in public. Uh, we see this in a couple lives. Uh, I thought about Daniel, who demonstrated a faithful testimony by his habit of prayer. It said in Daniel 6 that three times a day he would get down on his knees and open the windows and he would pray to God as a faithful Jew, uh, praying to the Lord. He had a faithful testimony. And even when they tried to go and find dirt on him, it said they could find no corruption in him at all. He was a man of integrity. He was a holy man. Oh, would that be said about us? We'd be holy people. Joseph also demonstrated a faithful testimony by his commitment to purity. Potiphar entrusted everything into his household. And then Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. And he said in Genesis 39, 9, No one is greater in this house than I am, Joseph said. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God. See, Joseph desired holiness. And that's what God asked us to do. Even in the midst of suffering, he's saying, Peter is saying, we can live holy lives. In fact, it's through that suffering that God purifies us, purifies our speech, purifies our motives, purifies our intentions. May God help us do that not only for the sake of Christ, but for the sake of those outside of Christ. Colossians 4, 5 says, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. So I would encourage us, study the life of Daniel. Study the life of Joseph and see the things they did. Why did they live holy lives? What was it in their relationship with God that caused them to do that? And then I would also even mention some Christian biographies um, that you can read on great, uh, great men and women of God. Um, Hudson Taylor, who took the gospel to, to China. Um, I read that a number of years ago, and it's a great read, how he spent hours uh, learning the language and studying the original languages of the Bible and and becoming like a Chinese person so he could share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And 
his holy practices. Um, William Carey, who also took the gospel to India, uh, was known as the father of modern missions. And um, there was a fire that burned up his work, and he just went right back to work. And all the translation work that he had done was burned up, but he just went right back and started again and persevered. Uh, what a holy man. Uh, William Tyndale, who was burned at the stake, uh, translating the Bible, was a fugitive for 12 years, running to spare his life. He was translating the Bible so that people could read the Bible. And Martin Luther and others, um, Susanna Wesley would be a great one to read. And I just uh, downloaded a book this week on... Uh, uh, Spurgeon's wife, Charles Spurgeon's wife, uh, Susie, um, and want to read that. Uh, but those are great biographies and challenge us in our holy living. So we have a, a fixed hope. Uh, we have a faithful testimony. The third imperative he gives us is a fear of God. Notice what he says in verse 17. Since you call in a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. A fear of God. Many people have a mixed understanding of what the fear of God really is. And let me just clear, make it simple, as simple as I can. The fear of God and the love of God are really two uh, sides of the same coin. The fear of God and the love of God are two sides of the same coin. You see here he talks about the fear of God in verse 17, but then in verses 18 and 19, he talks about God's great love for us and his redemption for us. Notice he says, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So we have this fear of God. We have this reverence for God. We have this love for God. Why? Because he loved us first. We think about the gift of his son on the cross. And that should really encourage us to have a reverence for him and a love for him because he's what he's done for us. We have access to a God who is faithful. Notice he says, since you call on a father, he's a faithful father that we have the privilege to call on day in and day out. And he's a father, it says, who judges each man's work impartially. We're poor judges. <laughs> We misjudge people, we misunderstand people, but God looks beyond the external and he looks at the heart and he's gonna judge us based what he sees on our heart. And so he's not based on our appearance, our background, our education, our wealth, our beauty, no. It's those things all sway man's opinion, but not God's. God looks at the heart and he's not looking for us to mess up He's looking for ways to bless us, encourage us, help us through our suffering and through our difficulty. But then he says, live your lives here in reverent fear. That's what we were challenged to do as Christians. In the midst of suffering, to live our lives in reverent fear. Why? 
Well, for the sake of what Jesus did for us on the cross, but also because there's a watching world. There's a watching world. The unsaved are watching. We're living in a foreign territory. Satan is the reigning monarch, and he's wreaking havoc on God's people. How do we live in reverent fear? We have a tender conscience toward God. We live to please God. Uh, we live to resist temptation, uh, to be aware that our hearts are constantly attempting to deceive us. He tells us in 1 Peter 1.21, Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so your faith and hope are in God. And when he talks about your faith and hope are in God, he's literally saying, you are faithful to God. You have learned to be faithful to God. And that's what he wants us to do. We have leaned our weight on God. We have placed our confidence and trust in God. Because God raised Jesus from the dead and he exalted him so we could place and fix our faith and hope in God. And there should be an inward delight in the ways of God as well. Walking in truth. I love this uh, illustration from Pastor Ray Ortland, who is also an author. He talks about a Christian's body as on loan from God. And he says, to illustrate this truth, he says, he writes this, he says, I try to drive carefully, but when I happen to borrow a friend's car, I drive very carefully. I don't want to damage the property of a friend and return it to him all banged up. Even so, our bodies are the, only, are the personal property of someone else. The only way we could say, who does he think he is telling me what to do with my body? Is, is by my not belonging to him at all? Did he shed his blood to cover our sins? Has he given his spirit to make us new? If so, then we should glorify him in our physicality and especially our sexuality. Why? Because we don't belong to us. We belong to God. And we should live our lives in reverent fear, submitting our bodies and our minds to the Lord. We will do that when we get a clear view of the evil of sin in our lives. That sin dwells in our heart naturally. J.C. Ryle writes about this in Thoughts for Young Men. And incidentally, if you have a young man in your family, I would encourage you to get it. It's just a little thin booklet. It was written in 1886, but it's just as well written yesterday. Um, he challenges young people to get a clear view of the evil of sin and to consider the cost of our redemption, that Jesus died for sin, provided forgiveness for sin, shed his blood, he was scourged, mocked, insulted, crucified like a shameful criminal. Why? Because of our sin. Sin is costly. And so therefore we want to be free of it in our lives. I think the Westminster Catechism says it best, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So J.C. Ryle says, read God's word reverently as the word of God, not of man, believing implicitly that what it approves is right and what it condemns is wrong. 
Let me give you the fourth imperative quickly. The fourth imperative that he gives us in this passage is that we are to have a fervent love. If we are going to walk in holiness, if we are going to pursue intentionally holy living, we have a fixed hope. We have a faithful testimony. We have a fear of God, and we have a fervent love. A fervent love. He says this in verse 22, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. Sincere love. He's saying that it is without hypocrisy. It is without deceit. It is genuine. It is true. It is authentic. It is real love that you have for brothers and sisters in Christ. Love one another deeply. Love with fervency and constancy. I love the uh, story. It's a traditional Jewish tale um, that's told by Scott Bellows. Uh, he, he writes, in a small Jewish town in, in Russia, there's a rabbi who disappears each Friday morning for several hours. He, his devoted disciples boast that during those hours, their rabbi goes up to heaven and talks to God. A stranger moves into town, and he's skeptical about all this, so he decides to check things out. He hides and watches. The rabbi gets up in the morning, says his prayers, and then dresses in peasant clothes. He grabs an axe and he goes off into the woods and he cuts some firewood, which he then hauls to his shack on the outskirts of the village. There an old woman and her sick son live. He leaves them the wood, enough for a week, then sneaks back home. Having observed the rabbi's actions, the newcomer stays on in the village and becomes his disciple. And whenever he hears one of the villagers say, on Friday morning, our rabbi ascends all the way to heaven, the newcomer quietly adds, if not, higher. In other words, it's the, the, the highest, it's, it's the climax of the Christian life that we have this fixed hope we have this faithful testimony that we live holy lives. We live with the fear of God before us for an audience of one. But then we have this fervent love toward one another. The Bible says the world will know we are Christians by our love. And you know, there's something about love in the midst of suffering that we can comfort one another and encourage one another through that fervent love. What does someone going through suffering need? They need to be loved and encouraged. And Peter's saying, you know what? In the midst of your suffering that you're going through, in the midst of what we're going through, even as a the, one of the greatest things we can do is, is reach out to another person and show love and concern to them. So let me encourage you, even today before the day's out, maybe there would be a name or two that God would impress upon you. You know what? I need to call them. And maybe you've never talked to them in your life. And it's time, you know, and God just lays them on your heart and you say, I need to call them and encourage them and just say, I love you. How can I pray for you? How can I encourage you? Um, we need to do that. It's so easy in our day and age right now with everything going on is to be focused on ourselves. And God wants us to reach out to others. Uh, so this is our challenge today to be holy even in the midst of suffering. What an encouragement. Why? Because Jesus is coming 
back. <laughs> He's going to take us out of this sin-cursed earth that is groaning because of sin, and we are going to be free of all this one day. But until that time, be encouraged. We have a fixed hope in Jesus Christ. And because of that fixed hope, we can have a faithful testimony, reaching out, living a holy life. We can live in the fear of God. When God says something's wrong in the word, we believe it's wrong. When he says it's right, we believe it's right. That's living in the fear of God. And then we can have a fervent love for one another. And if you haven't accepted the love of Christ into your heart yet, you can do that. Recognize you're a sinner, broken before God, and that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin, paid the penalty for your sin that you could be forgiven, and be in a right relationship with God so that you can begin to live a holy life. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.